The appointed reading for the fourth Sunday in Advent is from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, and it is on page 681 of the Pew Bible. Today we are still in the season of Advent, and technically Christmas is still a week away, but for whatever reason, the lectionary gives us Christmas a week early this year. It's kind of like opening our presents a week early, and we'll take it. So please stand as you are able for the reading of the gospel. From Matthew 1, we begin reading at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Rejoice! The Savior of the world has come. The prayer, O come, O come, Emmanuel, has been heard and answered. Emmanuel has come. God is with us, and he is with us to save us. We learn this from the names Matthew records in this text. Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus could be called a tale of two names. There are two names for Jesus that we learn in this passage, and both names teach us something about him. One teaches us who he is, and the other teaches us why he came. Names have meanings. In English, the meanings are usually hidden because we typically take foreign words and we don't really translate them. We just leave them the way we are. Uh, We especially do this with names from the Bible. We leave them the way they are. So, So we don't name our children quite as bluntly as the Hebrews did. Many parents will affectionately refer to their daughters as princess, but not many of them put it on their birth certificates. They name them Sarah instead which is the Hebrew word for princess. Naming a Hebrew girl Sarah is the equivalent of naming an American girl princess. And uh, the birth name that my parents gave me is Daniel. It's another Hebrew name that means God is judge. Uh, But none of my friends ever came over to my house and asked if God is judge can come out and play. (laughs) But if I had grown up in ancient Israel... That's exactly what would have happened. 
For the ancient Hebrews, names often confessed something about God. But in a few cases, the names were actually prophetic. They taught something about the person who was given the name. And that is most certainly the case with Jesus. The name Jesus is given to him by an angel from heaven. And the other name we find in this text, Emmanuel, is assigned to him by the prophet Isaiah. And these two names, they teach us who Jesus is and why he has come. So first, let's talk about the name Emmanuel. This name teaches us who this little child is who is conceived through the Virgin Mary. The name Emmanuel literally means God with us. This is miraculous. God has taken on the flesh of a tiny baby human. Just think about that. This is remarkable. That which was conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Even from the first moments of Jesus' human existence, he is both God and man in one person. This is remarkable. It's one thing to consider that a a full-grown man is both God and man in one person. That's incredible enough. But it's another thing to consider that a newborn baby was God and man in one person. As unbelievable as that may sound, it is true. And as incredible as that may be, it really goes back even farther. We take that newborn baby and back up about nine months, when he was just a microscopic embryo. And that microscopic human possessed the full deity of God in that microscopic human flesh. Amazing. In that moment when Jesus was was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, God came in the form of human flesh. He became God with us. That is who this little child is, and it is expressed in the name Emmanuel. But why is God with us? Has he come to judge us? Has he come to punish us? Has he come to teach us how to be nicer boys and girls so we can get more presents? There are all sorts of reasons why God might come down to us, but we don't have to guess, because the other name tells us why. So let's talk about the other name, Jesus. This is the name the angel assigns to him, and it means the Lord, or Yahweh, is salvation. And uh, for just a minute, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy, so bear with me. The name Jesus is the same as the name Joshua, really. It just changes a little bit in translation. So if we had a time machine, well, I suppose we would have lots of fun with our time machine. And one of the things we could do, we could go back 2,000 years and witness Jesus' childhood. be kind of interesting. And if we could listen in on the conversation at Joseph and Mary's house, we would hear them call their little boy something like Yeshua. Uh, That's uh, probably close to how the Hebrew name sounded. And that Hebrew name gets translated into English as Joshua. 
So Jesus and the Old Testament hero Joshua, same name. But the New Testament was written in Greek, not Hebrew. And the Hebrew name Yeshua becomes Jesus in Greek, and Jesus comes into English as Jesus instead of Joshua. So what's the point? I'm sure, you're, I'm sure many of you are wondering. Uh, I'm not saying that we should start calling Jesus uh, Joshua or Yeshua or Jesus instead of Jesus. We should keep calling him Jesus because that's his name in English and we speak English, so we should still call him that. The simple point is that Jesus is the same name as Joshua and they both mean Yahweh is salvation. So if we could take a a magic translator device with us when we go back in time, we might hear Jesus' friends come up to Joseph and Mary's house and say, can Yahweh is salvation come out and play? Because that's his name. Yahweh is salvation. So when the angel appears to Joseph in a dream, he says something like this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yahweh is salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. And that is the meaning of Christmas. Our sin is the reason God became man. When you consider the image of this little baby Jesus, know that the reason for this is the filthiness of your heart. This might not be what we want. It might not be what we think we need. But this is exactly what God knew we needed. So that is what he did. He came to save us from our sins, and we must never forget it. The reason for the season is our filthy hearts, our sin. Christmas is all about God's love in the face of rebellion. And we need to talk about this too. We need to talk about the condition of our hearts. We need to talk about our problem. I'm convinced there are two types of consciences. And if your conscience doesn't fit into what I'm about to describe, let me know and I'll have to rethink things. But as I... uh, look at my own conscience, and as I hear people talk about the real struggles in their own lives, I've become more and more convinced that every conscience falls into one of two categories. We could call the human condition a tale of two consciences, and that is pride and despair. And this isn't my own distinction. I've heard it expressed by others. And as I look at my own conscience and as I hear other people talk about theirs, I think this distinction is right. We live our lives either in pride or despair. And both of these attitudes, by the way, are wrong. Now, for at least most of us, it would be wrong to say that our consciences are always prideful or always despairing. Sometimes there is a mixture, and oftentimes, Our lives are more like a ping-pong match, back and forth between these two attitudes. 
Some of us spend more time in pride, which we really ought to call hypocrisy. And some of us spend more time in despair. But every conscience that is still functioning at least a little bit will cause us to bounce back and forth between pride and despair. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You can recall a time when you were feeling pretty good about yourself, at least in terms of morality. You thought you were a pretty decent person. But then something happened. You did something, or someone caught you in something, and I don't know what it is, but I know that you do. And your conscience sprang to life, and it zapped you straight into despair. That's really what the conscience is designed to do in those moments. It makes us see the truth about ourselves. And it makes us feel like scum. And we think that we will feel like scum forever. But we don't like feeling like scum, do we? We don't like seeing the truth about ourselves. We want our consciences to go back to sleep. So we do various things to snap out of it. We try different methods to make our consciences stop yelling at us so much. Sometimes we torture ourselves. We think, maybe if I'm hard enough on myself, my conscience will start to feel bad for me and leave me alone. So we try to pay for our sins through self-deprecation. And certainly, we ought to confess our sins. But our confession is not what makes them go away. And neither is our self-deprecation. We might make ourselves feel better, but our sin doesn't go away. The other thing we do to try to not feel like scum is we just try to do better. Our consciences accuse us because we do bad things. So we resolve to stop doing those bad things. And this, of course, is not really that bad. We should try to do better. But we commit hypocrisy when we fool ourselves into thinking that we can change our nature or manage our sin. Now, at least most of us would stop short of saying we can totally erase our bad deeds by doing more good deeds. That would be a really crass kind of self-justification or works righteousness. But there's always something in us that, that makes us think that we can actually make ourselves better. And we want to believe this. Even when we accept the fact that we need God's grace, we still just wish we didn't need it quite so much. We want to believe that we can be better. So we try to manage our sin. We might even come up with little strategies to discipline ourselves and build better habits. And this, again, is not entirely bad. But we fool ourselves if we think we can actually manage our sin. And we commit hypocrisy when we think we can make ourselves even a little bit less bad. And I think this might be the most common error in the Christian church today, simply because our hearts want to believe it. If we can improve ourselves just a little bit, then we can find something to take pride in. And that would feel good. And so much of Christian publishing and music and even preaching is devoted to this idol of self-improvement. 
we usually call it transformation. The idea is that we can make ourselves better. And it appeals to our egos. We kind of think that if God can get us started on the right track, then we can finish the job. It's the idea that we can become less sinful. But you all know what's wrong with it. You've been there before. You've been the ping pong ball going back and forth between pride and despair. We've all been on the the pride side of the ping pong table, and we thought we were going to stay there. We thought this little bit of self-improvement was finally going to stick this time. We thought we had finally gotten our act together. We thought we'd keep climbing up higher and higher on the mountain of our own holiness. But the mountain is an idol, and it's an impossible one at that. So we fall. We all know what this is like. We, we do that thing we swore we were never going to do again, or, or someone discovers that secret we weren't even willing to admit to ourselves. And our consciences smack us back into despair. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? I know you've all been there before because this is simply the human condition. You have experienced this before, we all have, and we will experience it again. And this is why Jesus is named Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. The angel doesn't say Jesus will teach his people how to manage their sins. And I, for one, am glad that he doesn't do that. Because I have learned that I can't. No amount of tips, tricks, strategies, or advice will enable me to get my sin under control. And if you haven't learned this yet, you will. You will get knocked back into despair. And in that moment, you don't need something that will just result in momentary pride. You need something better. You need someone who gives you a clear conscience before God. And his name is Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. And his gift to you is a conscience that is good before God eternally, now and forever. Because regardless of how you feel, even as the ping-pong game of your conscience plays back and forth, when Jesus saves you from your sins, you are saved from your sins. I'm talking about the forgiveness that he won on the cross for you. And I'm talking about the life he promises you on the resurrection, on the last day. You stand right now justified before God. Because of Jesus, he does not hold your sins against you. Even though we all struggle with them daily, God does not hold them against you. Because he held them against Jesus. And that is enough. And it goes even further. He promises that our daily struggle will not last forever. Jesus' salvation includes the day he will return to raise us from the dead and transform us, body and soul, into his own image. 
He came to save his people from their sins, and he did not fail. You and I might fail, we all know this, but Jesus did not fail. He accomplished his mission. He did what he came to do. And this is what his birth, this is what his death, this is what his resurrection is all about. He came to save his people from their sins, and he did. So rejoice, the Savior of the world has come. Jesus, Yahweh is salvation. Amen. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.